What's up, guys? Welcome to Commissioners Podcast with your hosts, Matt Sartrick and myself, Peter Fendura, and our special guest today, Mr. Richard Barrett. So the podcast where we tackle current health news, the hot news topics, one conversation at a time. Remember, guys, keep checking us out on Instagram, check us out on YouTube, download episodes, give us the five stars, five stars only. If it's not five stars, don't waste your time rating us. Just keep doing your thing, guys. Yeah, Rick told us if you guys want to give us a star to just put it in your back pocket. So anyways, we're going to introduce the special guest that we have today. Um, he's a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. His IG handle is rickyrick.sci. And he's awesome. He's working on some immunotherapies, and we're looking forward to speaking with you today. How are you? I'm doing good. Just uh, reporting from the lab here, getting a little bit of uh, work done, and happy to take a break to talk science. Awesome. So what made you get into um, your profession or what kind of started everything else to, you know, where you kind of got where you are today? Yeah, that's uh, I took a kind of untraditional route. Um, I certainly never expected to be a cancer biologist, uh, especially where I am now. My research start was actually in marine biology. At uh, I went to Florida Atlantic University, which is in South Florida uh, and just won our conference championship yesterday. So shout out to the owls. <laughs> But that's where I got my research start. And I knew I wanted to be a scientist, uh, but wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do. And that was kind of where I started is doing some sea turtle research. And then after my undergrad, I kind of shifted over to the more medical side, uh, doing some natural products research. And so I was a research diver for the university, a scuba diver. And we'd go out and collect coral and sponges and uh, different you know, organisms from the ocean, we'd extract the compounds and screen them for their neuroprotective, neuroprotective, uh, you know, therapeutic use. And so that was kind of what moved me over to the medicinal side. And then during my PhD, I kind of made the rest of that shift over. I left the scuba diving just for fun and, uh, you know, went full time into the lab and uh, did a PhD focused on immunology there. So that was kind of my staggered road to get to, to where I am now. Wow. Interesting. So you went from surfing to studying, you know, marine biology to studying cancer therapy. That's so cool. So would you say a lot of people like, you know, understand the immune system and know that basically we have these white blood cells that, you know, fight off infections that kill bacteria. But what can you tell us a little bit more about the immune system that you would say that the average person is not aware of? Yeah, that's the uh, kind of where my research comes into play is, you know, usually when you think immunologists, you're thinking of vaccines and keeping away viruses, bacteria, all of that. My studies of the immune system have been more in the non-traditional roles, if you could think of it that way. And so my PhD, for instance, I studied immunometabolism. And so how the immune system and the metabolism interact with each other, influence each other and control each other. And there's a lot of crosstalk between those two systems. Uh, and even coming into the space I am now, cancer immunotherapy is a pretty new field. It was, you know, only in the past few decades that we've really understood the degree to, uh, to what degree the immune system helps surveillance and maintain, you know, the key word being homeostasis, keeping the body, you know, functioning 
functioning as it should, uh, to what degree the immune system has a role in that outside of just, you know, keeping us safe from pathogens that are invading. And so a lot of what I've done is, is look at those roles, how the immune system controls the entire body um, and helps kind of return you to the place that your body should be whenever it gets out of whack. That's really, it's one of its main functions. Yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. So, so how do you, so how does the actual work together? Cause we always need the, the metabolism response that works with the immune system to like to correlate. Correct. But how does that like, how does that work together? How do, how do those cells actually get fed? Do you know how that works at all? Yeah. So it, it's kind of weird to think of because this isn't the scenario we're in nowadays. We're very well fed nowadays. We have plenty of nutrition and plenty of energy coming into the body. Um, but for most of the organisms on earth and for most of the ways we came up, energy was one of the main limiting factors in how organisms functioned. And particularly with the immune response, it takes a massive amount of energy in order to mount a response and to fight off a pathogen. And so a lot of times what the immune system will do and some of the biggest connections it has with metabolism is in making sure when we're ready to mount a response that we're freeing up energy, which is fats, sugars, anything that the immune system needs and getting them into the bloodstream. So that way the immune cells have access to them because the immune cells are doing a lot, right? They're moving around a lot. They're migrating to areas where they're needed. They're producing proteins that are needed. Uh, to attack, you know, an invasive parasite or a virus or whatever they're doing, that requires a lot of energy for them to react in the way that they're reacting. And so a lot of their connection with the immune system will be in making sure that that energy leaves the places it's stored. So getting freeing up sugars from the liver or freeing up fats from the fat stores and getting them into the bloodstream. Now, that's awesome if, you know, you're fighting off something that the immune system can handle and, and, get it out of the system. Uh, but if that's constantly being activated and you have a lot of inflammation, what ends up happening is a lot of the organs or places where this energy is stored aren't able to efficiently store it because they're continually getting signals to mobilize that energy into the bloodstream. Uh, and when that happens, a lot of fats, sugars, all those things end up in the wrong places. And there's a lot of organs that can't handle the you know high sustained levels of those different molecules for very long. And that's something where, uh, you know, your fat stores and other places where, you know, glucose or fats are stored, uh, they get a bad rap, but they're really saving your life. You know, you, if you eat a very fattening meal, you don't want those fats in your bloodstream for long periods of time. They'll kind of force their way into places they shouldn't be. Like you shouldn't have high levels in the liver. They can force their way into the heart, you know, the heart muscles, you see fatty heart, things like that. It's important that a lot of those storage areas are able to pull those out of the bloodstream and store them safely because the other organs aren't capable of dealing with them. And so when you have the immune system really running higher than it should for long periods of time, uh, things kind of end up in the wrong place, which can lead to, uh, you know, health problems in the long run. Uh, so I like, I like how he, um, you mentioned spe uh, that back in the day we needed, Sorry, my auto here. So I like how you mentioned back in the day, we needed energy to have this immune response and everything that's going on. And it seems like nowadays we have all the energy that we need. It's just the efficiency of the system, right? So it's kind of, it's kind of funny when I think about things, I'm in California and there's a huge homeless population here. And, you know, back in the day, you look at all these medieval movies and these homeless people, they're very skinny and all that. And nowadays we don't have like skinny homeless people as much like just speaking out of and out of a bias here. It, it, so it seems like that our issue is not 
energy, it's efficiency, right? And our immune system, you're, you're basically stating that it's not as efficient as it should be, which is creating um, not a, like an autoimmune attack, but it's just not being efficient to wait a response or it over, um, over, it's being overreactive to anything nowadays, correct? Not just bacteria and viruses. Yeah, absolutely. And even some of the food that you'll eat, uh, you know, can cause issues. One of the things we focused on a lot that my PhD advisor back when I was at University of Central Florida, he had discovered a theory of oxidized lipids. And so this is uh, something that happens a lot with fats. And if you're just sauteing something very fast, you know, for 10 minutes or so, it's not a big deal. But when you are doing something like deep frying, right? And so you have like fast food restaurants that will have these big deep fryers filled with oil and they're heated to very high temperatures for long periods of time. What happens is those fat molecules, when they're heated up, will get oxygen just from the air attached to them and they become oxidized. And uh, what that what happens then is now those molecules, when they're ingested, cannot be, uh, you know, metabolically broken down through the same pathways that a normal fat could. Right, the enzymes that eat away at the fat molecules to make energy can't get past that oxygen that's been stuck onto the fat molecule. And since we don't have uh, you know, we can break these down to a certain degree, but the immune system really has to pick up the slack there because you end up with a buildup of these and the immune system is able to break them down. So it'll go in, kind of collect the stuff that can't go through the normal channels and take care of it. Now at low levels, that's not a big deal. That's what the immune system does. You know, we've been cooking with fire or whatever for long periods of time, our bodies are used to that. But if you're going and you're just cranking down a bunch of French fries every single day, uh, you're going to piss your immune system off because it's like, hey, this isn't, we shouldn't be doing this much. And uh, it'll do a lot of, you know, signaling it doesn't need to be doing. It, it, it kind of will throw things out of whack a little bit. And so our, we have systems in place to deal with all of this stuff and we can do so efficiently. Uh, but if you're kind of hitting it with the same insults every single day, day in and day out, you're going to stress very particular systems out, um, which can over the long periods of time, you know, kind of throw health out of whack in different ways. Yeah. So yeah, kind of to big pick it back off what Matt said, it's kind of like in Western culture, we don't have an issue of like under eating. It seems to be a more of like overeating. Like Matt said, it's, we predominantly are most people, especially because of lower, lower income gap is, is pretty big. A lot of people, they eat, they have food to eat, but they choose the wrong food to eat. And a lot of that leads to oxidized stress. Like you said, a lot of it's fried. So do you guys do any like antioxidant uh, research where you work? Uh, not here. So I actually did more, uh, you know, in our PhD because my advisor had kind of been a big part of, of discovering. I, I told him he was a buzzkill. He was the man that discovered fried food is bad for you. But um, because of, you know, that nature of his work, they had done quite a lot of antioxidant research. Um and it's a tricky subject because the word antioxidant is such a big group of molecules, right? It's anything that can, and really it's kind of a soft definition to be honest, because it's anything that can be oxidated, uh, any molecule that can accept, uh, you know, an oxygen molecule for the most part, if you're using the broadest definition. And a lot of the clinical work has been 
kind of underwhelming, honestly, in the antioxidant field. The preclinical stuff looked really great in cell culture. You know, there's oxidative stress. If we put in antioxidants, it helps combat that. Um, but it's far more complicated when you get into the human body. And he had actually done clinical trials. Uh, he was a cardiovascular scientist. And they had done clinical trials with vitamin E as one of, you know, some of the vitamins also are antioxidants as well. Um, and most of them came back negative. And the issue is that, you know, oxygen free radicals are something that stresses our body out a lot, but it's also a necessary part of our body doing its function. And so a lot of the reactions that are necessary for us to stay healthy and for our bodies to function normally are redox reactions. And so, you know, it tends to have a negative effect or a, a net neutral effect with a lot of the antioxidants. Uh, a lot of times they don't get to where they go or you're trying to get them to go because they will go ahead and undergo their, um, they tend to be kind of like suicide saviors, right? They're accepting the free radicals that would normally be bumping into other uh, cellular processes and, and interfering with them. And so a lot of times they'll just get oxidized in the bloodstream and they don't actually get to the places they're supposed to go. And so that whole field has really struggled to find its place in kind of the clinical setting. Um, and I, I couldn't really make any recommendations either way. I haven't seen any anything that's really convinced me the antioxidant. I haven't seen anything bad about them, but I haven't seen anything that's really convinced me they have a major effect on on health in general. And I'm surprised at, that the general public, you know, especially in the marketing field, seems 100% sold that antioxidants are going to, you know, fix everything. Uh, a lot of great research was pointing that way, and the clinical data didn't seem to follow as closely. So... Yeah, the reason why I brought that question up is because I was one of the people that was really into antioxidants. And then I looked at some of, I'm not sure you're familiar with him. Um, he's a professor in Harvard on genetics and aging, Dr. David uh, Sinclair. Oh, I've heard his name, yep. He's, yeah, he's the one that I actually listened to. And he's the one that kind of said that antioxidants aren't exactly as like this God molecule that we that, that we thought it was. That just because you did taking all these antioxidants doesn't mean you're, you're necessarily going to get rid of cancer or, or never, you know, develop cancer. Yeah. And honestly, um, this is, you know, uh, oxygen free radicals aren't something new that we're experiencing now. They've been around since life has been around and most of our cells have their own mechanisms for dealing with this. Our cells produce proteins that are specifically antioxidants, things like superoxide dismutase, you know, there's different proteins that if they're being stressed by, oxygen-free radicals, they produce their own antioxidants in response most of the time. And that's a more directed approach because the cells that need it will produce it. And so there's certainly uh, health issues that are stemming from oxygen-free radicals. Uh, it's without question something that causes a lot of stress in the body, but it's far more complicated than just you know consuming antioxidants and so I have one quick question. I know I know you're not a nutritionist or anything, but if you were if you were just to kind of sharpshoot really quick and throw some answers at us at why in our current society are we having this inflammation? You would say like is it specific foods that you would you know suggest to not eat? Of course, we mentioned like deep fried. Is it anything else? Is it the lack of sleep? Is it um, what are the big contributing factors for our immune system to just be overreactive? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's hard to say because I think there's a lot of different things that, that kind of do it differently for different people. Um, but I'd certainly the obesity epidemic is one issue. And then the type of food that we eat, we, it tends to not be very diverse, right? And so the food we eat actually is 
in one sense, very nutritious and then it provides us with a lot of energy. But for most people, that's not the limiting factor. They have plenty of energy. And so when you're eating a ridiculously large amount of one molecule, like, you know, glucose or fructose or just one thing, uh, it puts a lot of stress because different molecules go through different parts of metabolism, right? And so glucose is taken up by cells one way, fructose is taken up another way, fats are taken up another way. It's not just a general digestion that takes place. All of these molecules are kind of shunted down their path where this, uh, you know, they're dealt with. And it's difficult to say because we're kind of going through this shift. Um, you know, it's hard to, to demonize that as much because, you know, just 100 years ago, there were severe famines where people died from starvation. And, you know, people were working severely demanding physical jobs. And so these foods, when they came, you know, became popularized, things like hamburgers and French fries and just high energy foods, they really probably did improve human health for a little bit. Because when you're having issues with starvation and not meeting your caloric goals and people are wasting away, I mean, we haven't had a famine in decades in the United States. And so nobody really knows what that's like to experience not being able to get that food. And so back then that was healthy because that's how you became big and strong and strong strength and power were, you know, revered more than perhaps longevity at that time. And so now that we've kind of gotten away from that, it's hard to shift an entire nation's mindset that, um, you know, a big fat meaty steak is not the healthiest thing because when they were growing up, they, you know, their parents came from a time where they remembered it was hard to get food and being able to get a big slab of meat and eat the whole thing, uh, you know, while you're working a 12 hour day you know, on a farm, that's, that's healthy, you know, cause you need some energy and you got to crush it and that's the easiest way to get it maybe. Um, and so there's this shift in culture and sometimes it takes a while for that mindset to shift with it. And, you know, nowadays we're appreciating things like longevity and people have lived long enough to understand, okay, maybe when I get to 60, this did end up stressing my body out a little bit more. And those just weren't considerations back then. And so it's difficult for some people, especially who are out in areas where, uh, you know, the physicality is really respected more and, and admired more. Um, you know, it's hard to make that mental shift, but in the long run, especially when most people are working desk jobs nowadays, or even if it is pretty physical, it's probably not, you know, working 12 hours on a farm every day, kind of physical. And, um, we just, those kind of diets just, uh, aren't quite, they don't match the lifestyle as well. Right. And so I think that's where that kind of mismatch between lifestyle and diet is, is an issue, but it's tough to just, you know, I always feel bad straight up just demonizing one kind of diet because for the right person, it's right. Right. Michael Phelps is probably one of the healthiest people on earth, but if a regular person ate his diet without doing his workout regime, they'd probably die 20 years earlier, you know? And so it's really, um, when people ask me, that's a question that comes up a lot. What's the best diet? And that's a question that can't be answered because there is not a best diet for the entire human race. Um, it's really, you know, there's some things that are obvious, like for most people, like we've come to the understanding, you know, plants are probably the best thing to base your diet around. Um, but when you try to get to the really fine tuned stuff, like should I eat eggs or not eat eggs or should I eat broccoli or should I eat chickpeas? That stuff, you're really splitting hairs there. And it probably has more to do with the individual when you're trying to talk about that kind of specific stuff. Um, what are their genetics? What's their microbiome setup? Where do they live? What's their lifestyle? Uh, and so there is no perfect diet for the entire human race. And um, I think that's where you get a lot of arguments because, you know, organizations like the American Heart Association, those kind of, they're doing the best they can in prescribing a diet 
that's going to be right for the most amount of people possible, but there's always going to be exceptions to um, any kind of diet you throw out there. And so. Yeah. With the, with the whole diet, do you believe there's like a, like a bias based on, on industry? Because at one point, you know, Coca-Cola and all those, you know, sugary drink companies, they funded studies that said that fat was bad and sugar was nothing to, to be worried about. Do you think there's something like that going on with like possibly like the meat industry where they're pushing, you know, the, the keto diets and kind of doing their own research and saying meat isn't necessarily bad, but they're getting mixed results and they're only publishing the ones that are in their favor. Yeah, it's uh, it's difficult to to kind of really nail down what goes on. I think it does come back a little bit to the oscillation, right? Uh, the first um, kind of experience the world had with being over, you know, having too much nutrition came from when we were able to, you know, easily farm animals and meat. Uh, the price of meat came down so that everybody had access to it. And I think that's why fat was the first thing demonized because I don't think we had quite as many refined sugary drinks uh, or, you know, a lot of these refined, heavily refined uh, or processed foods because we didn't have the technology to do that on a large scale at the time. And so I think they noticed fats first just because it was the first problem, right? All of a sudden people are eating massive amounts of meat and fat was one of the main nutrition, like high energy molecules that was coming. Um, And then after we started to get that under control, people are like, okay, we know fat's bad but we hadn't really looked as in depth into everything else. So they said, fat's bad. Let's get rid of it. Well, things taste pretty bad when you remove all the fat. So what people did is it just started loading things with sugar because we hadn't done the research on sugar yet to the same degree. And so it's easy to say, ah, we, you know, we got rid of the fat and that's all everyone cared about. And so, but when you start loading it with sugar, then it took a little time to realize, oh crap, maybe that's a little overboard too. And so I think it, it just comes in waves, you know, research takes time. And, uh, you know, we figure out one thing at a time and the, the marketing departments are usually much faster than us. <laughs> and so as one thing of research comes out, they can move very quickly to kind of rebrand themselves to something that hasn't been researched yet and isn't quite as controversial. Um, and then a few years later, we catch up and then they just move to the next thing. And so that tends to happen a lot. Uh, you know, the research that gets funded is the research that gets done. Absolutely. And uh, they have more money. And I'm not saying I wouldn't go so far as to say that they were influencing researchers as much. I think it has more to do with they found the researchers that were already looking in the places they wanted them to look, which are perfectly viable areas. But they, if you pump money into certain areas, they will kind of become overinflated, overmarketed. And even though they're true, they may not be, you know, um, the best places to be highlighting, you know, they're maybe not as, as, uh, the, the whole field may not be as, as in, you know, tight of understanding for, for that area. So. Peter, I feel like you threw a conspiracy question here with the research and all that, um, difficult to answer, but I like how we kind of talk about diet and how everything, and I want to wrap up the diet soon, but so I've, I, I looked at a YouTube video yesterday and it's interesting how the, the, t- the topic was sleep and not everybody needs eight hours of sleep either, just like research has been saying. And I don't know if you know about this, but there's different chromosomes that they check for. And based on your genotype, you're able to sleep differently. So this guy that had his um, genotype or chromosome tested, he wakes up every morning at 3.30 because for his body, that's the best way, that's the best sleep that he gets. And he's more productive at 4 a.m. to whatever. So you being, you know, 
Rick and you knowing science and you doing all this, do you feel like you fine tuned your body very well to having a great routine or what is your diet or what is your health routine that you've noticed that's the best for you? Yeah. So I'm a big nerd on sleep. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, my master's since I was doing that marine natural products and we were looking for things that had neuroprotective, uh, you know, capabilities. I, my master's ended up being in neuroscience. And so I actually kind of did go overboard, you know, looking into everything, but it, it certainly differs a lot between people. Um, one thing that's, uh, for most people, you tend to sleep in 90 minute cycles. That's kind of what we've realized. This is probably the average for most people. 90 minute cycles of going through deep sleep and REM, and you'll kind of go through those throughout the night. Uh, so me being the nerd I am, I have a, a sleep app, you know, sleep cycle that will track my movements. Cause you know, for part of that sleep cycle, your body will kind of paralyze itself. And then as you come out, you'll be able to move and shift and then you go. And so by tracking movements, it'll keep track of your cycles. And so I use that and set my alarm for like a 30 minute period. And it wakes me up at my lightest stage of sleep. And, uh, so I do seven and a half hours every night, which is five sleep cycles. And, uh, I think thinking that much about sleep and, and fine tuning it that much probably shows how big of a nerd I am, but that's, uh, <laughs> that's where I've gotten to. So seven and a half hours of sleep every night for me. Uh, and I don't, I don't budge on that unless I absolutely have to, uh, food wise, I, you know, I don't overthink it too much. I take, you know, the viewpoint that what works for me is what a lot of people push, which is, uh, building your diet around plants, right? Uh, regardless of what that is and, and whole plants, right? You try to get fibers in as well. That's another place where people will kind of twist the truth a little bit. We'll say, we, you got to eat plants and people are like, all right, well, I'll eat 40 carrots by juicing them. And they're like, actually, you just removed some of the most important stuff. We said, eat the whole thing. <laughs> and so, uh, that's what I try to do. And I'll eat, you know, uh, meat. I try to have, I'll have a little bit of meat every day with, you know, one of my meals. I don't really pay too much attention to it and I'll go out and I'll have a big Mac if I'm feeling it every once in a while. Like I said, our bodies are good at handling that kind of stuff. If you give them some, uh, if you're not just hitting them with it every day. And so I, you know, am not too militant on my diet, but that's kind of the viewpoint I take, you know, I pick a plant to cook with and then I build a meal around that. However I feel. So that's kind of how I run my stuff, I guess you'd say. Okay. And most of your work, we're talking, it comes around uh, fat, correct? Like uh, obesity, most of the research that, that you do. Uh, so is there any links with like fiber and, and obesity that you guys have, have found or anything like that? Is, is it people with any low fiber diet, are they more prone to being obese? Um, yeah, there's been, so, you know, this is pulling from my stuff about a year ago, but there has been an explosion, obviously, that I, I'm sure you guys are aware of in kind of the microbiome and the research being done there and, and our understanding of it. And there's right now it's in a very early stage. And the reason it's exploded recently is because we finally have the technology to study these things. Uh, I think Illumina and some other companies that have come out with some of the next generation sequencers for DNA, uh, you can do some techniques like shotgun sequencing. And so we can take, you know, in the old days, we were limited at looking what bacteria were in the gut by taking a stool sample and growing the bacteria and seeing what grew. But the problem is if there's a thousand different species, maybe five of them can actually grow outside of the gut and then the rest don't. And so we could only study those five species. And that was the only ones we, you know, we had a kind of underestimated how much was in there, you know, in our bodies. Um, but with these shotgun sequencing approaches, what we can do is just take stool samples and look at the DNA 
that is there. And that will tell us what species are in there and to, you know, what proportions they are in the gut. And so that's why we've seen a lot of this explosion is because once that technology came around, it became much easier to uh, monitor and observe what's going on with the microbiome. Uh, so most of the early studies have been very correlative, uh, just getting an idea of what species are in the body under certain conditions. And we're kind of making the shift now to causative where we can do fecal transplants, you know, uh, so moving bacteria from one microbiome to another and seeing if the traits in the new host mirror the traits from the other host. And that will kind of give you some causality. Uh, but right now there's certainly a difference in the microbiome between obese and non-obese. It's difficult to say whether that's driven from the obesity or whether it itself is driving the obesity. Um, and it looks like it's a little bit of both, you know? And so I, I don't know if I can speak too in depth or too detailed, but that's kind of where the field is, is right now in the microbiome field. And that's just my exposure to it through friends that are in that field. I don't do that you know, research directly myself. So you studying the immune system, I know there's like a little fact that people say that 80% of your immune system is in the gut. Do you find that true for the most part where the immune system is mainly located in the, in the gut? Uh, I, it depends on what you mean by 80%, right? 80% of the mass, 80% of the cells, 80% of the activity. Um, and so I, I couldn't speak either way towards that. And I'd have to see, you know, the scientists in me would want to see their methods. <laughs> but uh, the gut is a huge part of how the immune system is really dictated. And we're seeing that even with the cancer immunotherapies. Some of the most recent work in the past year or two will show that the success of some immunotherapies is uh, dependent on the microbiome as well. And the way it really makes that connection is that a lot of the kind of immune training and, uh, you know, the level that your immune is uh, your immune system's kind of set at is determined in the gut, right? So there is a, a incredibly large amount of interaction with immune surveillance. Um, you know, they're monitoring the microbiome, making sure those bacteria that are living with you aren't overstepping their bounds, going places they shouldn't be, aggravating the gut. Um, if you have inflammation in the gut, that tends to stem to the rest of the body as well. Um, and if you have a healthy gut, that tends to help. Uh, the immune system function a little bit more deliberately and, and perform its functions a little bit more, more easily. And so they've shown that, you know, some of the cancer immunotherapies that have come out, that if, uh, you know, certain microbiome can suppress that response, right? And so the whole point of the immunotherapies, which we can go more uh, in detail in a bit, is to help the immune system find and kill the cancer. And depending on the signals it's getting from the gut, that can be synergistic or it can, you know, cancel each other out in some ways. I, th I think PD, you're trying to talk man, but your mic's muted. Oh, I'm sorry. So like we understand that gut health plays a big role in like a healthy immune system. Is there any like steps or precautions to take, um, to, you know, to get a healthy gut? Is there anything like you like you recommend doing like probiotics things like that. Like, obviously we want to reduce inflammation. Is there any specific, like, I don't want to, I don't want to say like secrets or just things that you found in your research that, that promote a healthier gut, which leads to a healthier immune system. Yeah, I'd say probably the biggest one is uh, taking in a lot of fiber, right? And diverse fiber as well. Uh, the microbiome relies, you know, they're living, growing things that rely on the things that we ingest in order for them to grow and uh, to survive in our gut. And if you're 
eating, you know, a lot of things that are easily absorbed, right? So if you just take like a teaspoon or a tablespoon of sugar, we absorb that incredibly fast because it's a very simple molecule. It gets into our bloodstream almost immediately. Um, and that means it doesn't make it to the lower parts of our gut, right? Most of our microbiome is limited to the later stages of our, uh, you know, intestines and colon. Uh, whereas fiber is an important food source for a lot of the species that we want to promote. And so when you eat, you know, if you go out and get a thing of broccoli or you're eating spinach, something like that, we're pulling the nutrients that we can pull from it. But a lot of that fiber isn't just inert material traveling through our, uh, you know, digestive tract, it's getting to the ends almost wholly intact. And the bacteria actually have the enzymes to break that down to a degree. And they rely on that as an important food source. And most of the ones that we want to promote, most of the species that seem to, you know, really be symbiotic with us, uh, rely on that food source. And the ones that can survive in the absence of it, are the ones that tend to kind of piss off our, you know, our lower digestive tract um, and cause that inflammation. And so if you're eating things that are extremely easily absorbed, uh, you know, the ones that we want to promote are kind of getting starved out and the ones we don't want are now overcoming them. And uh, if you're having a nice diverse amount of fiber that is really high in your diet, you're going to promote the right ones. Um, as far as getting bacteria in there, we're eating bacteria all the time. I mean, every time you breathe, you're breathing in bacteria most likely, and it's coating your throat, you're swallowing. Some of them get killed in the stomach. Uh, some of them make it through. So we're constantly getting exposed to bacteria. That doesn't seem to be as big of an issue. Um, but most of them don't can't survive in the gut unless the environment's right. And so it's more important if you set the right environment in the gut, the species that need to grow are going to get there and they're going to grow pretty much regardless. And so it's only in other more severe cases where you may need to actually introduce a you know, certain species or something. But I'd say that's probably the biggest thing. So for those that are listening, Rick is recommending a nice bowl of oatmeal when you guys finish listening to this episode. That's stuff. <laughs> that is the stuff. I'm actually going to have one myself. Um, so let's switch gears into um, like cancer, for example. So those that are the listeners that are like not aware of all the science that we're just spitting out at people, Let's let's break down exactly like how is cancer being formed in the body? How is your body like attacking these cancer cells and what is leading us to be like susceptible to overproduce cancer where tumors start happening? Maybe that's too much of a question, but let's let's break it down for the people that are not super sciencey about cancer and how everything kind of starts. Yeah. So we'll start at the very beginning with what is cancer, right? Um, and it seems to be kind of a mysterious thing to people, but really at its core, it, the one thing that kind of unites all different cancer types is that it's just one of your cells, right? One of the 30 to 40 trillion cells in your body has kind of decided to go rogue and start dividing on its own. And it's not listening to cues from the body to stop dividing it's kind of stopped doing the normal function that it's supposed to perform in the body. And it will continually divide and divide and divide and grow and grow and grow despite the body's best efforts to stop it from doing so. Um, now, the thing that may surprise people is that you make these cells either cancerous or precancerous, potentially cancerous, whichever word you want to use. Uh, you make these cells every day. Right. And that's just a, a shots on goal kind of thing. Like I said, you have 30 to 40 trillion cells, just statistics alone. Uh, I think I've seen papers trying to estimate this. It's a tough thing to estimate about 10 cells a day. Uh, they kind of mathematically figured out is, is what they expect is how many cancer cells you'll make every day. And that's a scary thought for most people because most people 
you know, see cancer when it's at its worst. Uh, but our bodies are extremely good at dealing with cancer, right? They've done it ever since multicellular organisms existed, there's been issues of some of the cells not playing along. And so there's a lot of systems in place to help uh, stop this. Now there's intrinsic uh, mechanisms. So the cells themselves, we have written into our DNA uh, genes that keep them from going rogue and dividing too much. Uh, You know, genes like P53, which are some of these famous cancer genes that anybody who's, you know, experienced cancer is likely heard of. Um, And these are genes that help the cell uh, if it, the cell senses that it's dividing out of control, that it's malfunctioning, that it's no longer performing its job correctly, it has suicide genes to kill itself. Right? So that's the first, is the cells monitoring themselves and having checkpoints so that they will uh, undergo a process called apoptosis, which is a programmed cell death that's a little easier on the body. They will do that. They'll off themselves for the, you know, the good of the body. If they don't and they're, you know, a couple mutations have occurred, a mutation in the DNA that allows them to divide uncontrollably and another mutation that is, you know, in the checkpoint that's supposed to stop that. And so, you know, you get a collection of four or five mutations now, then they can, you know, get off the rails and start dividing uncontrollably and causing issues. And that's where the immune system comes in. It has built in processes to deal with this. It can identify when a cell is no longer behaving as it should. The immune system can come in and take care of that cell. It can, you know, eliminate it. It can gobble it up. It can clear that out of there. And those two processes alone are usually enough for any human to make it their entire life without having to experience the disease of cancer, it actually affecting their life. Um, and, you know, that's with everyone making cancer cells every day. For the most part, you know, those uh, perhaps other signals from the body that suppress growth. And so if it starts to grow, they can, you know, send signals for it to stop that may override that system. There's a lot of ways for the body to deal with it. Uh, and so that's what cancer is. And that's how our, our bodies tend to deal with that. And where's your research line now? So you said you were working in a lab with um, immunotherapies, right? So how is that, how is that helping the process of killing the cancer or what, what exactly is it that you guys are trying to identify to help our bodies, you know, become more resilient on fighting off the cancer? Yeah. So we look at a few things. Uh, and so this, this whole concept of immunotherapy is a newer concept. It it was kind of controversial for a while because we knew our immune system was very good at identifying things that were non-self, right? If an invader comes in, but we weren't sure to what degree it was able to understand dysfunction in the body and find cells that are self, they are us. They're just not behaving the right way. That's um, if you're looking at at a cellular level, that's actually a pretty amazing thing that they're able to, to do that. Um, and so some really great work, uh, in particular, uh, my current boss, one of her friends, James Allison, uh, he won the Nobel last year because he did some of the early pioneering work in this showing that the immune system is capable of uh, hunting these cancer cells down and killing them and, and clearing them and maintaining health. And so he, him and uh, the other Nobel Prize winner from that year, they both had gone at these different pathways that uh, cancer cells use to manipulate the immune system, right? If the immune system kills them, the only way a cancer cell can grow in the body is if it can somehow hide from the immune system or shut the immune cells off when they come in contact with it. And so they had studied some of these uh, in the most famous ones, if anybody uh, has, has heard of them, is pdl one 
and CTLA for. So those some gene names for anybody who's aware of them. Uh, and so these were signals that cancer cells were able to kind of ramp up that would shut the immune cells down. Immune cells would maybe identify that something's up, they'd come in, but once they got that signal, it would shut the immune cell down and they wouldn't kill them. And so the first immunotherapies were drugs that interfered with that process. And so if these two receptors have to come together in order to give the signal, they created drugs that fit between those two receptors so that they couldn't communicate with each other. And then the immune cells could perform their function as they're supposed to. Uh, and so that was really the first drugs, right? These are traditional drugs as we think of them. I believe they're either uh, small molecules or antibodies, depending on which one. And, you know, just drugs that help the immune system do its job. Uh, we've gone also into another class of uh, immunotherapies because that's a very broad classification. It's just treatments that uh, are immune cell driven. And so that covers a lot of different types of therapies. One of the ones that we're working on here now is called CAR-T therapy. And uh, it's actually been FDA approved. So this is being used in patients, even though it's not very well known to most of the general public, but it's an amazing therapy. We take immune cells from the cancer patients, right? And so we know that their immune system is having difficulty recognizing their cancer because that's how the cancer was able to establish itself. And so what we can do is remove those immune cells. They're called T cells that are some of the main cancer fighters. And that's where the T in CAR T comes from. Uh, we take them out of the patient and we can genetically engineer them to express a receptor uh, that is specific for whatever we want, right? So we can tweak that little piece of DNA that we're putting into them and change the receptor to target different things. Uh, and so we'll take that receptor, target it to something specific on their cancer, and then reintroduce that immune cell back into the patient. And so what they have is their own immune cells are coming back into their body, but now they have this new receptor that we've made that's specific for the cancer. And so when they go in and they come in contact with the cancer, now they have a tool to interact with it uh, and they stick and they are able to efficiently kill the cancer. And so those are, are kind of two of the main fields of immunotherapy, one being the drugs that enhances the immune response, the other ones being uh, kind of almost sci-fi technology of us taking immune cells and genetically engineering them but they both fall under that immunotherapy umbrella. Yeah. So for the, for the CAR T therapy, that's, that's really interesting. And I actually looked at the price. It looks, sounds pretty expensive too, but for the CAR T cell therapy, do you guys physically take out the blood, like kind of like dialysis where you guys take out the blood and then modify the, the, the DNA to recognize the cancer cell and then put it back in into the patient do you guys use use CRISPR to do like the, the gene splicing or, or anything like that? What's like the exact mechanism you, you guys use for to alter the, the genes? Yeah, so, uh, and I'm going to do it, if I can remember everything as best I can from our clinical side, you know, they're the ones taking care of that. I work more on the conceptual side of, of helping design and, and find the right targets to target. Uh, but yeah, they'll remove the immune cells, uh, probably through some kind of dialysis and then get them into culture system. Uh, the actual product for a CAR-T is what we call the construct. It's a little string of DNA that encodes everything that we need. Um, and the earlier trials, we use viruses to get the genes into the cells. So we have these, they're almost nothing like a virus that we'd normally come in contact with. We've just taken all of the machinery from a virus because the whole point of a virus is to inject DNA and get it into the, our genome so it can 
uh, you know, replicate. And so we've kind of taken the machinery from those and we can feed our construct into it. And then they'll go in and very efficiently insert that DNA in there. Um, and then we can remove all of the virus. There's none left, uh, but our cells have been altered with the alteration that we need. And that's been done. That's a very common way to do genetic engineering. It sounds scary, I, admittedly, because we're using a virus to put these genes in, uh, but they've, we've been doing that for decades and there hasn't been any issues and it's been working well. And that is what the technique that's approved for the FDA approved therapies. Um, that's what they're allowed to do. Now, with the CRISPR revolution that's going on, uh, CRISPR is a much easier way to do genetic engineering. And that's why it's become such, uh, you know, it's gained so much notoriety is because it's very simple to use. Um, and it's, it's very well targeted as well, uh, as far as, you know, where you want to insert things. And that has started now. And so uh, it's Dr. Stoudemire, I think here, I'm getting his name right. He is part of the core CAR-T team of the main physicians who initially made this therapy. And he's using CRISPR now instead of the viral approach to insert this. And I think they've already done it with two patients and it works quite well. The therapy itself is generally unchanged in this process. They're just using a different tool to insert that DNA because that's something that needs to happen. And so it, I don't know how much it will change the therapy because like I said, it's just using a different technique to get the DNA in. Um, they just didn't go to that because at the time they were developing the therapies, CRISPR was rather new and we wanted to spend more time with it to, to see how it you know, functioned and how it worked inside living cells before we went to humans. Whereas the viral approach had already been used safely for decades. And so that was why they did that first, but now they're kind of, you know, going over to the CRISPR side, it seems. How do you identify, because you said you work from the side of um, the lab where you're kind of identifying what the cancer exactly has on it. It's like, is it antigens exactly? Or what are you identifying to know how you should create this immunotherapy for the specific cancer that that patient has? How do you identify that? Yeah. So in the case of the other immunotherapies, um, you know, talking about the ones that were like the checkpoint inhibitors, those PDL1, CTLA4 things I talked about. Uh, in those techniques, you're relying on the immune system itself to find them, right? It's, it's identifying self and non-self. Um, and it's usually in the case of misfolded proteins, right? These uh, cancer cells are growing so fast and they're not doing the normal quality control that a cell should do as it divides. And so there's a lot of mistakes that build up in the genome, a lot of mistakes that build up in protein folding. And so your immune system's good at recognizing what you look like, you know, your cells look like and what protein should and shouldn't be there. But if you take a protein that normally looks like this and it's been folded up weird, it's able to kind of see that and attack that. Uh, in the case of the CAR-T, it's a little more difficult because we need to tell the cell uh, what we want it to target. Um, and there's different approaches people have taken. The one that's worked uh, so far, so far the CAR-T is only approved in blood cancers, right? Different types of leukemia and lymphoma. Um, and they've targeted to something specific on the, I believe it's B cells. It's a CD19 receptor. Um, and most, even the healthy B cells will have this, but what it allows it to do is those cells go in and wipe out that entire population of that type of cell, um, which will get rid of the cancer because some of them are healthy. Some of them are the cancer. It just wipes everything out. And then you remove that therapy, shut it down. Uh, and luckily stem cells can rebuild that population. And so in that case, they took advantage of that, that they could just wipe out, you know, cut a whole branch of the tree off of these immune cells and that they'll grow back and you know, that will get rid of the cancer in one way. 
we're actually taking a very interesting approach and I can talk about it because we've published it. Some of the work is confidential. Uh, but in our approach, we're studying uh, these cells that are responding to the cancer, right? The healthy cells that are around the cancer. And this kind of gets me into another part of our, our cancer talk is the solid tumors have been difficult to treat with immunotherapy because they can hide better, right? They're this solid mass and they can kind of coerce the healthy cells around them into protecting them and also participating in this immunosuppression that helps hide them. Um, and this is called a desmoplasia. It's this kind of protective cap. You can think of like the peel on an orange that's kind of growing around it. And it's all quote unquote normal cells that are being manipulated by the cancer through whatever signals it's sending out to kind of surround it and protect it. And the issue with this is that makes solid tumor cancers very difficult to treat with things like chemotherapy uh, because you'll have kind of a positive pressure within this area. It's very dense and pressure kind of positive pressure, I guess is the best way to put it. And so the natural diffusion of molecules won't go into that space. And so chemotherapies will have difficulty with it. The immune system has difficulty getting into this environment. Uh, it makes it, it's a, it's a pretty big barrier for therapies in general. And so what we've discovered for our CAR-T that we put together is it would be the first CAR-T that wouldn't target the cancer cells directly. What uh, we found is, uh, and many others, you know, tons of labs that took to do this research, uh, is a protein that the healthy cells, when they're being manipulated by the cancer and they're growing around it, they'll express this one kind of protein called fibroblast activation protein. And that activation is the key part because they're activated, they're moving, surrounding the cancer. And so all the ones that are activated uh, that we want to target are expressing this protein. And so we'll take that construct, we switch out the outside to attack those cells. And even though it's not attacking the cancer itself, what it'll do is dissolve and kind of break down that protective barrier around the cancer. And then we can come in with another therapy and hit it with immunotherapy, hit it with chemotherapy. The cancer should be exposed after we've broken down that barrier. And so that's kind of really deep science I've taken you through here now. Uh, but yeah, hopefully if that makes sense to everyone, that's what our, uh, you know, our lab's car is designed to target it'll and that's going to be pretty neat it'll be the first one not targeting the cancer cells themselves but a process that they take advantage of to hide yeah that's that is some deep side it's pretty interesting i was trying to i was trying to consume all that while you're while you're talking but you might just send me some some links to look look into this a little bit more uh, so i know you're you guys are working on that specific kind of car t cell um therapy is there anything else you're personally uh, working on i know you have two articles that are going to be published or are you working on two articles? Yeah. So I'm working on two review articles right now. And so, um, for anybody not familiar with scientific literature, we have our primary articles and then, uh, our kind of review articles. And so, you know, whenever we perform, you know, our own groundbreaking research ourselves, something new to science, we publish that as a primary article of showing exactly what we did, the research we did, how we did it, our interpretation of it. Um, and then the review articles are a much better place to look if you're going into a new field. That takes uh, a concept and then goes through the hundred papers that talk about that concept and basically makes a summary of what the field looks like in that space. And so I'm writing two review articles right now. Um, for our field. And so what we're studying or what the focus of those review articles are is the 
those healthy cells that are being manipulated by the cancer, basically, and how they influence immunotherapy. And so one of the main cell types that our lab focuses on is fibroblasts, right? And so these are a cell, people have heard of fibroblasts, they've probably heard about them in skin, right? They make up a lot of the skin, they produce all the collagen, all of the hyaluronic acid, the extracellular matrix that holds us together. But they also make all of the scaffolding in the rest of the body, right? And so the liver cells that are in your liver are held together in this matrix that makes it, you know, a tangible, you know, squishy thing. Uh, and that's produced by the fibroblasts. And they're really the structural component of the human body. Uh, but they're the ones that are most susceptible to this manipulation by the cancer cells. And so uh, a cancer cell that's able to manipulate them can survive and really cause havoc in the body by manipulating these fibroblasts. And they're the main ones that form that kind of cap or the protective barrier around solid tumors that happens very often. Um, and so the reviews that I'm writing right now just kind of summarize all the research that's being done into how these fibroblasts are affecting different therapies um, because we didn't know to what degree they did this before. And now that we understand how these healthy cells are being manipulated, um, a lot of the people designing the drugs need to know, hey, if, if a drug is attacking it this way, this is how these cells are going to counteract that drug. And so this needs to be taken into account. And so that's what those will be on, just a, a general summarization of everything that we know about how fibroblasts can interfere with uh, one's more particular immunotherapies and immune response, and the other one's a more general uh, you know, therapy in general. So, Rick, did you watch Independence Day? I did. Yeah. Okay. So literally when you're like, yeah, same here. But when you're literally telling me about like this fibroblast and the shield that this tumor has, like my mind is just going in from like that movie. I'm just having a glimpse of somehow there's this giant spaceship where we're just trying to knock the damn shield down, man. And so like, you know, trying to manipulate these fibroblasts, that's like the metaphor that I'm like, kind of like rehearsing my mind while you're like telling me all this. It's so cool. Yeah. And that's actually probably a pretty good metaphor for it. You know, um, that's in certain cancers do that very well and certain don't like pancreatic cancer. One of the reasons it's such a deadly cancer is because it's probably the most efficient cancer type at manipulating these cells to kind of grow around it. And in fact, uh, a lot of times they'll remove a pancreatic tumor and 70% of the mass will actually be fibroblasts and the extracellular matrix they've made. So far more than half of the tumor is non-tumor cells technically. Um, and so things like pancreatic cancer, lung cancer, head and neck cancer, those are very good uh, in general at you know, taking advantage of this response. Other ones don't seem to rely on it as more. And we don't know the difference of why some need to have this response in order to survive and some don't. And that's part of our research as well is, is understanding that. Okay. And if you were getting, if you want to get into a little bit of like sci-fi, let's just say, and you know, your handle is sci at the end, what do you think the future of immunotherapy and fighting cancer is not something that you could constructly say is based on science? What do you think is your um, sci-fi way of thinking, we're going to fight off cancer in the future, where technology is going to head. Yeah. And so it's already starting now. And it's really, you know, the buzzword is personalized medicine, uh, but that's really what's needed in cancer. Uh, you, people ask me a lot, like, do you think there's a cure for cancer out there that's not being taken advantage of, or if we'll ever get a cure? Um, and personally, I strongly believe there'll never be a cure for cancer, all cancer, right? Because the when you say the word cancer, you're actually talking about over a hundred very separate and different diseases, many of which have nothing to do with each other other than the fact that they're just cells dividing a lot. Um, and when you have 30 to 40 trillion cells in your body, 
the cancer can be very, very different depending on which specific cell was the one that turned cancerous because they'll keep some of their original traits from you know, the cell that they were before they became a cancer cell, and that will completely change the way that the disease progresses based on, or they'll pick up new mutations that will change the way the disease progresses. And so it's amazing we've done so well, you know, and that's a difficult term to say considering that we haven't seemed to do so well treating cancer, but the fact we've had any success at all because we really don't have that many therapies for how many different types of cancer there are. We're using a very limited set of tools to try to treat a lot of very different diseases. And so what I think is going to happen is we're going to get much better at understanding each person's individual cancer. What cell did it stem from? What traits does it have? What traits has it picked up? How is it manipulating the body? How is it growing? Um, and then, you know, we'll probably need artificial intelligence to help understand all this because uh, it's going to be more than any one person could ever know. And so that's where I think the technology side will come in as well. Uh, and really getting an understanding of treating each individual patient. You can cure cancer in a patient. You can't cure the entire disease across a population easily, but you can cure a person if you know enough about that specific disease and you understand your entire toolbox of things that you have to treat it with. Um, and so even with just the treatments we have right now, getting that better understanding of an individual's cancer, what's driving it and how it's behaving, even if we find no other treatments, I think we would be able to really expand upon uh, and extend lifespan and, and the amount of people cured just by knowing more about the individual. Uh, the problem is that it's going to take some time to get all of that into place, you know, um, to get those kind of analytics, you need to do genome sequencing of their cancer. You need to do proteomics, understand what proteins are making. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot of work, but we're getting there. Uh, and as the toolbox expands, so will the knowledge of how to use those tools more efficiently. And I think that's really where the field is going to go. And I think there's going to be a lot of success in going that route. For sure. Do you think we'll reach a point where humans are going to live forever? Uh, if you want me to get kind of on, on a Joe Rogan trip with it, um, I think we'll probably, you know, if I'm just thinking for fun, I think we'd hit singularity before we, uh, you know, merging our minds with machines before we figured out how to get these bodies to live longer it's probably going to be a lot more work to get something that was never supposed to live even close to this long. That's made up of trillions of individual living things trying to work together. We'll probably, uh, we'll probably download our brains into machines before we figure out the human body thing and then just leave that behind entirely. <laughs> but Man, that's, that's my a... sci-fi trip guess. <laughs> Did you ever watch Westworld? Yeah. Yeah. And so something like that will probably, I think we have a bigger chance of, of pulling that off first than we do of, uh, getting, getting these things to, to last that much longer, but. All right, guys, that's a pretty good episode and we should probably wrap this up a little bit. We're kind of running out of time with the break here. It's been over an hour, but we, we really oh, appreciate wow. <laughs> yeah. we, all the science that you gave us, man. It's been great. And, um, those that want to know more about Dr. Rick Barrett, you could check him out on Instagram. He has awesome, um, um, what's called content all the time about him in the lab and everything. And that's at Ricky bar, correct? Rick, no, Ricky, uh, Ricky Rick. Rick dot si. dot si. Yeah. And so, yeah, I try to, you know, it's, it's kind of low production value, but whenever I see something cool in our lab that I think other people might find interesting, I'll just whip the camera out, take a quick video and share it. And, uh, my grandmas seem to think it's pretty cool. So as long as I'm appeasing them, <laughs> <laughs> all that matters.
Alrighty, guys. Well, guys, see you guys next week, okay? Have I appreciate you guys having me. It's been a fun time talking science with you guys. Uh, thank you, Rick. Later, man. Have a great day, guys.